BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Well, you know, I just, I don't know, Sophie. I I think that you're kind of being unfair when you say the audience is is just terrible people and you hate them and you want to throw boiling water from a cast iron skillet on them. I don't know that that's fair, Sophie. That seems kind of mean to me. But Robert, I was reading I would that. never say that. That was a direct quote from your diary. I that was Those weren't my words. That's what you said. Sophie, you can't prove that. Not I mean, in it's in writing. It was in your blog. Yeah. Well, who knows? What's a blog? That, it was a Zanga site. I remember. I followed you. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, That's how old I, I feel. I feel <laughs> attacked in my own podcast. <laughs> my own podcast <laughs> that I built amazing. with my own two hands. Unbelievable. Um, our, our Welcome guest, to Behind the yeah, Bastards. I was going to say, our guest is Samantha McVeigh. Feminist the podcast icon. where I, Robert Evans, am slandered to a terrible degree, unfairly, Despite having never done anything wrong. Ever. Hello, Samantha. I would never. How are you doing, Samantha McVeigh? Hello. I know. I, again, I aged myself with the Zango reference, so mm-hmm. I know people are going to be like, oh, my God, what is wrong with you? Oh, yeah. We're all um, old as hell. Everybody here is old as shit. You're welcome. I'm really yep. glad to throw it back at this early. Yeah. Samantha, what's what's what is that's that's your whole that's your whole question. What is yeah. what is how is, yeah, what, is what what is but how is it? Yeah, exactly. How is what and what is how? Is there an answer? That's the question. There never was. That's good. Are you, are you asking if she's the host of a podcast called Stuff Mom Never Told You? On this very, is she? A, uh, well, yeah. it, well it, is she, See, This is Sophie. why I keep you around, Sophie. Yeah. I know that you've got this better than I do. Yeah. This has been really a great introduction a for all I guarantee our fans. Robert would never have gotten there. Never. I would have gotten there. 
it's not. I I I love it's our okay. audience. I yeah, love all of everybody you except love for about our 40% audience. Forty percent of them, statistically speaking. So this is a podcast. It's about bad people. Normally, we're doing a little bit of a different thing today, Samantha. And I and I okay. brought you on. I brought you on because, as I can tell right now, you exist in a black void based on your. Zoom I am avatar. a black void. And I assume that that's what goes on in the heart of anybody who understands math. I feel like that was racist. Is that racist because I'm Asian? Like, is whoa, that just what whoa! What? It's because you're living. <laughs> it's because you exist within a black void. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't know that was the math. I didn't question. say anything about you being and Asian. Or. Whoa, Jesus! You're welcome. This no, is how we were we, to start we the have, show. So, More slander. Like, obviously, if for the people listening to this podcast, there's a pretty good chance they're renters. Uh, they're about thirty. Renting renters are about thirty six percent of households nationwide, or a renter's head thirty six percent of households nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, although those numbers are a couple of years old, I don't know if it's that was like pre pandemic. Um, do you rent or do you own, Samantha? I now officially own because we were kind of pushed out from the rental that I had because he went up by, I want to say 40% on our rent. Jesus Christ. So you have been, that's we're talking today about why the rent is so damn high. Um, And some of the people who are responsible, we're going to try to drill into specific people whenever possible because that's our our bit. But I am also in my first year of home ownership. I've been a renter the first 15 years of my adult life. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't know about you, most of the living situations I was in were like the broadly criminal, like illegal, <laughs> like like the, the yes. landlord was breaking a law and so my rent was cheaper. We actually uh, like had to, I've told this story a couple of times, we had to like talk a city of Los Angeles inspector out of reporting fire hazards in our apartment because we were like, dude, I live a minute and a half away from Santa Monica and we're paying like a thousand bucks a month for a room. Wow. Like you gotta, you gotta like, you gotta just keep quiet. Like we'll burn to death if we burn to death, right. bro. <laughs> yeah. We'll risk life or death for this situation because it's cheap. Because <laughs> it's cheap, yeah. Because it's cheap. Um, but nothing is cheap anymore. Uh, it has no. gotten rent has gotten higher at a ridiculous rate since the pandemic, in particular. Not that it wasn't raising before, but it's really raised a lot. Say as you just said, you just uh, we're about to go up forty percent year over year. In Miami and Tampa, rent is up about fifty percent of its pre-pandemic numbers and nationwide median rent has topped two thousand dollars a month for the first time ever uh which is insane when i was you know a kid 14 you know 13 14 15 years ago living in my first apartment two grand a month is like that's a rich person's rent yeah like like that's a crazy rich i remember going to like a friend's apartment in manhattan that was 2500 bucks a month and being like what the fuck is wrong with you people right (laughs) i pay 700 a month for a three bedroom (laughs) like um yes now, the, the fact that median rent has topped $2,000 a month is heavily influenced by the poll of the big cities. These are very skewed numbers that may not reflect most individual people's experience because of how big some of the big cities are and how high the rent is there. So San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, Miami, et cetera, are the places that are skewing the numbers and the places where rent has surged the most, but rent is still up basically everywhere. Uh, it is currently increasing at the fastest rate since 1986. Um, and one of the things that happened during the pandemic is we had all these people moving to cities that they thought would be a better place to live because it was remote work. Um, 
which helped spread out some of the increases. Um, and there was a brief period of time where evictions were tamped down on somewhat by federal rental assistance. So even though rent was rising, it, it was hard to kick people out of their houses. But that has started to run out this year. And in 2022, eviction filings hit pre-pandemic levels and in many places exceeded them greatly. Cities does like that Houston, have an impact? Does the impact of like what's called pandemic pricing on rent have have an influence there? Where like a lot of places they... And especially in like big cities such as Los Angeles and New York, they were trying to fill places. So they gave a lower price. And then the next year, the increase was um, offensively high. Yeah, that's one of the things Speaking that's from happened. personal experience. It's, it's one of the things that's <laughs> contributed to evictions. Some cities, it's like it, like Houston in particular is, is one city I know where eviction rate filings are like 200% of pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, like it's right. massively higher in a lot of cities. And this is all yeah, fed Atlanta into- Yeah, Atlanta got hit a hard yes. with that. And immediately, as, as soon as it dropped, the amount of evictions that came, it was absurd and obscene. Yeah, and it, and it that that's fed into the homelessness crisis that's- this huge political thing and also just like thing thing everywhere in the country right now. Um, and I'm, it's, you know, kind of difficult to grok in absolute numbers how many houseless people are in encampments and other situations because those aren't easily recorded in federal and state statistics. But homelessness is surging in a number of American cities. And all of this is ancillary to the question, why is the rent so damn high? Now, if you go oh to like God. the... Yeah, exactly. Why is I'm the rent excited. so damn high? I know we're about to go down to this. There's going to be Blackhawk mentioning, Zillow mentioning, uh-huh. Airbnb well, mentioning. Are we going down these routes? We're, we're going to be talking about some of these. We're going to be talking about um, uh, a number of those. This is I I, I want to say right now we're not going to be. This isn't going to be a comprehensive list of all of the different things affecting rent prices. Okay. We're focusing on some particularly bastardy ones. Okay. Um, but we'll cover a lot of it. So please don't get on and be like, well, you didn't cover this or that. It's like, yeah, man, it's a, it's a big topic. <laughs> like, do you do you want us this to all be just one boring, broad overview of problems? Or do you want us to drill into some weird, fucked up assholes? Which is what well, we're going to yeah, do. Yeah, I got time today, so let's go. Yeah. So if you go to, say, the New York Times or most other big legacy publications to try to, like, you know, type into Google, why is the rent so damn high? You'll get various versions of the same answer. And I'm going to quote from a New York Times article here. The origins of the current homelessness crisis go back decades to policies that stopped the U.S. from building enough housing, experts said. Seven million extremely low-income renters cannot get affordable homes, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Now, Experts like these tend to place a lot of the blame on what we call NIMBYs, which stands for not in my backyard. And it references the fact that in cities like San Francisco, there's a lot of like upper class liberal types who make it very hard to build anything besides single family housing because they don't like big buildings and they don't like being in a a, a dense urban environment. Uh, Los Angeles County devotes 76 percent of its residential land to single family homes, which is bug fuck. Uh, This leads to (laughs) sprawling cities, which also require huge road systems, lots of parking, yada, yada. And it leads to higher rent prices because there's simply less space to build housing. The New York Times also notes, quote, homeowners also often protest proposed housing, effectively blocking it. They fear that more housing, particularly for low-income families, will change the makeup of their communities or reduce the values of their home. Now, in San Francisco... Isn't that what David Chappelle did, supposedly? I know that was like a small blip and it was a misunderstanding, but he like blocked a housing pro- like yeah area, yeah, right? yeah he said Supposedly. they said it was a misunderstanding okay uh, okay i just on the opposite that, end like, of things george lucas built a bunch of low-income housing specifically to fuck with his neighbors 
Um, oh, oh, oh. Hmm. His, his rich Great. neighbors, he, 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 he had had like noise complaint problems with his rich neighbors as a result of like the studio he ran. So to fuck with them, he built a bunch of low income housing in the neighborhood because he knew it would piss off the other rich people. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice of yeah, him. Yeah, based George Lucas. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um, he's a he's a he's a perfect unproblematic king. So <laughs> right, yeah, and, and there's like they're not the New York Times and stuff. They're not wrong when they say that NIMBYs are part of the problem uh, in San Francisco. There were recently a bunch of protests uh, to stop a project to convert a 131 room hotel in Japantown into housing for homeless people. Um, like a bunch of shit like that happens. California has about 23 available affordable homes for every hundred extremely low income renters, which is makes it one of the worst of any state in, in terms of that problem. Um, so they're not wrong when they say that like, yeah, the, the NIMBYs are a problem. People pro, not allowing like multifamily development and lots and stuff is a huge problem. And I've reluctantly come to see that like they have a point. Uh, I have, I don't want to, I, I don't like living in high density areas. I would prefer to live out in the woods. Um, but, but this argument is broadly, broadly correct. Uh, a huge part of the problem is that there's denser cities, is that we need to have denser cities with more multifamily zoning and residential areas. However, there's also a lot of bullshit in the argument that the New York Times is making here and in this argument in general, because the way it tends to get pushed and it gets pushed by people like developers and by intellectuals who take on the attitude of developers because the developers are their uncles or whatever is that all of the homelessness problem is to blame on these liberal city policies that just aren't letting developers develop enough. Um, and and while, again, zoning is a part of the issue, this analysis excises a great deal of the actual problem. For one thing, the whole we're not building enough housing thing tends to lay all the blame on zoning and these darn NIMBYs. Um, but one of the other problems is that, like, there's not actually people to build that housing. Um, this is this is a major problem in the industry, and I'm going to quote from a write-up on NPR's website. By one estimate, the U.S. is more than 3 million homes short of the demand from would-be home buyers. Pandemic-related supply chain problems aren't helping. They're adding tens of thousands of dollars in cost to the typical house. But the roots of the problem go back much further, to the housing bubble collapse in 2008. What I call a bloodbath happened, says Klaus, who's a... Uh, contractor. It was the worst housing market crash since the Great Depression. Many home builders went out of business. Klaus was building houses in Florida when the bottom fell out. A lot of my tradespeople found other work, went and got retrained for new jobs in law enforcement, all sorts of jobs. So the workplace force was somehow decimated. So more cops, less construction workers, nobody right. to build the fucking houses that they want to have built, which is not right. a problem that you can lay on zoning or NIMBYs. That's right. b- because we, it's because there was a fraudulent like banking industry that existed to sell people subprime loans on yeah. houses that were sh- low quality, massive and built in, in terrible locations. And when that fell apart, suddenly all of these people had to find something else to do. And you can't blame that on the fucking NIMBYs in San Francisco. Right. I mean, there's all this conversation about funding as well as who is actually going to be able to afford it. Is it, affo- is it truly affordable in right. actuality? Which it often winds up not being because right. like we we have there's like loopholes a lot like in Portland right now there's a, a building that's supposed to be affordable housing but one of like the deals the city gets is they get or the, the gives the developers that they can increase rent at a greater rate than other places could right uh, for a certain set amount of years which like it yeah it's all. There's all these fucky ways that it right. like affordable housing winds up not being affordable that is not due to zoning. 
or they just back out of this. So we had a whole project here called uh, the Atlanta Beltline, which is supposed to stretch around um, our metro area. And it was supposed to build up the city, have this walkable area, maybe get a rail station. I don't know. All these great things. But they had to buy out a lot of the areas, which is predominantly um, urban. And therefore, you know, it wasn't it was redlined once upon a time and it's now valuable because it's within the city. So they bought out these houses, pushing people out. Hello. Um, but the deal they had was they were going to put in affordable housing as well. Mm-hmm. They did not. They actually backed out of the deal, oh, so, really? deal so much. The originator who uh, proposed this plan, created this huge plan that was going to be like a 30-year plan. It's still ongoing, by the way, multi-million dollars from the city, so many things that they stepped down and said they were no longer a part of this project because it went so ugly and that people had to come back with, sorry, just kidding. We're not giving you this property back. We're just going to make millions and millions and millions of dollars without any going back to the city or the people who we promised that we would help. It was oh, bad. shocking. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, that, that's that sounds like the way it tends to go. Um, so, yeah, we have this fucking financial crash and home buying eventually slowly recovers after it. But building rates never do. Right. They stay below normal after the crash. This continues for like, you know, more than a decade because the workers simply aren't there to buy houses. So when millennials start to hit what should have been their prime home buying years, not only are houses more expensive than they had been, but there's less houses being built. And that's again, it's, it's just not due to zoning. It's the result of the home building industry tanking because a bunch of people who should be in prison sold and bundled up subprime loans and then those same people go to people in the New York Times pretending to be experts and say no we got to change the zoning so I can develop cities more and it's frustrating that that's the only argument you tend to fucking hear now even then even if you like because again the 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 New York Times the angle here is not entirely wrong but it also leaves a lot out even if you're just looking at their numbers because the numbers we see that are like the US is missing this many million homes right we're short 3 million homes or 7 million homes are if not kind of fucky which I would argue then at least presented in a way that does not provide people with clarity as to what the numbers actually mean. When I say the US is short 3 million homes which is something you'll hear on the New York Times a lot that suggests that like well, there's 3 million people who don't have, who can't get housing because of sheer lack of availability, right? Or at least, you know, X number of people, however many people fit into 3 million homes. And that's not really true. Uh, there's a lot of people where who are have these, started. Yeah. Where are these numbers are these coming homes? from? Uh, well, where are these that, numbers? And who, I'm kind of confused. I'm like, who actually says, all right, I've gone and, and taken a statistics and we figured out that, yes, this amount of people need this much many houses, but... Do we actually have a number and how did it come up to that? Yes, we're about to get to that. I'm going to talk to oh, that because okay. it, do, it does not work the way you would think it does based okay. on the way it tends to get summarized, right? Um, but yeah, th- there's there's folks who will argue just in general that the problem is not the way it's often presented. Kevin Drum is a writer for Mother Jones and I think kind of on the more libertarian end of things with a lefty tinge. His big claim to fame is that he helped solidify the idea that there's a connection between the drop in violent crime and the removal of environmental lead, like getting lead out of gas. He's like the journalist mm-hmm. who is big on that. And he mm-hmm. points out that while construction never recovered after the 2008 crash, that's because the crash led to the bursting of a housing bubble. And since housing mm-hmm. was indeed a bubble in that period, why would construction have returned to the rate that it was being added at when everyone lost their minds building trash houses as part of a shell game? Why, right. right? Like maybe it's not it's not a the problem isn't that housing construction didn't return to previous levels because those levels were insane and fundamentally based on irrationality. Mm-hmm. Uh quote 
During the early aughts, housing supply grew far faster than population. After the bust, household formation caught up by around 2013. And since then, housing supply has matched household growth and has exceeded population growth. So do we have a housing shortage? Everyone keeps saying we do, and the housing groupies keep yelling at me that my chart is meaningless. But why? It sure looks right to me. By the way, I was browsing through some OECD stats the other day looking for healthcare information, and I happened to run into their league rankings for housing. Guess how we compare? Based on indicators such as rooms per house, basic facilities and affordability, they rank us as number one in the entire OECD group of rich countries for the year 2020. We must be doing something right and something wrong. According to the OECD, we rank second from last among housing affordability for low-income tenants. So what he's saying is that like, well, the evidence that like we're short on housing is weaker than the evidence that prices and housing are being jacked up and inflated. It's right. like the, there is inflate. It's like with the grocery store, there is inflation that's affecting the price of your groceries. Those grocery stores are also making record profits because they have jacked right. up prices specifically to make more money with the cover of inflation. Um, right. Yeah. Drum's work is quoted favorably by Brian Potter, who works in the wonky side of the construction industry and writes a popular Substack for weirdo construction nerds who want to know about things like why has wood gotten so expensive and why did agriculture mechanize and not construction? He, those are the kind of things he writes about. He's also a member of the Institute for Progress, which is a right-wing libertarian shaded think tank who pushed the idea that a lot of social and political policy should be tested by having prominent people tweet shit. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that I'm not going to totally back this guy up, but he certainly knows more about construction than me. He has an angle, which is why I laid out what he writes for but he does he does a, the best job i've seen of, of answering the question of like what does a statistic like we're three million houses short really mean Quote, we'll start with some context. The U.S. has roughly 330 million people living in roughly 141 million homes, or about 0.42 homes per person. This puts the U.S. slightly before, below the OECD average of homes per capita. One thing worth noting about this is that previous rates of home building in the U.S. were partly driven by falling average household size. But there's a limit to how much average household size can fall. You can only add so many new households to a given population size. At the extreme end, you can't have more households than there are people. Average household size can can't be less than one. And in a world where A, children live with their parents until they're 18, and B, most people live with a romantic partner, and C, the population isn't declining, is a world with a higher floor on how small the average household can get. What happens if this world changes to one where the average household size is two? In the final condition, you'll be building twice as many houses. If you add four people to the population, you're now building two homes instead of one. But to get to that second world, you need to build 100 additional houses. Even if this process takes 50 years, Years, that's an extra two houses per year on top of the ones you're already building, which will temporarily juice your building rate. But once you work through that backlog, your building rate will drop off. Turning back to the real world, in 1960, the U.S. had a population of 180 million with an average household size of 3.33. By 1980, average household size had dropped to 2.76. This means that between 1960 and 1980, over 550,000 homes per year were needed just to keep up with changes in household size. By contrast, from 2001 to 2021, average household size only went from 2.56 to 2.51. We thus can't infer much from the fact that U.S. home building rates per capita are lower than they were in the past, because we would expect that to happen at some point soon regardless. Are you, are you, do you see what he's saying there? Explain it to me, because I'm trying what, to keep up with all of these numbers. Yeah, this is very, this is, this is, this is very wonky. I don't know any other way to say it, but the, the gist of what he's saying is, 
the average from like the 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 60s to the 80s household sizes on average got smaller which means right. more people were living in more houses so there were fewer people on average per house right the that the number of like people per house by comparison barely changed at all from 2001 to 2021 so okay. we didn't it would have been unreasonable for the housing rate to continue at the same rate it had been from the 60s to the 80s because we were not like the household size was not decreasing by right. that much, right? The social changes that led to us having more smaller households had already happened. And so right. it would have been unnecessary housing to a large extent. Um, it's uh, you, you basically, you can't infer a housing shortage by looking at housing construction rates in isolation, which a lot of people do. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I, I think the point here is that there's a lot of money in convincing you that this problem is simple and that the only thing to do is deregulate, right? If we deregulate construction, if we deregulate oh. zoning restrictions, that okay. will solve the problem, right? right. And, uh, and what, what, and obviously like Potter, I think is, cause he does conclude that like zoning changes are one aspect of helping with the, uh, the crisis that we're in right now, but the the thing that he and Drum are both saying is that the people who are saying this is just about a lack of households or a lack of quote-unquote affordable households aren't actually looking at the numbers as they really exist. They're, they're taking like these kind of broad summaries um, and they're trying to torque the actual numbers to say something that they don't. Um, in order to make a more a simple, in order to present a simpler picture, right? And it's a picture mm -hmm. specifically. It is a picture that re reduces the problem and removes solutions like rent control and eviction moratoriums, right? right? That's right. what's going on here. Um, and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot else. Uh, one of the other major issues here is that, and this is something that Potter points out, when we're talking about missing housing, we're not talking about a lack of houses. Like you'll hear a lot of people say there's X number of empty houses in the United States, more than right. enough to, and, and that is true, but that's not necessarily vacant housing, right? Vacant housing is housing that is on the market and available for people to purchase. Uh, okay. And right now the U.S. does have a historically low vacancy rate, so there are fewer houses, like per capita, fewer houses available for people to rent than there have mm -hmm. been in the past, even though there's plenty of actual empty houses. Because right. if those houses aren't available to be rented, they're not vacant. And a big reason why there's so much empty housing that is not technically vacant is Airbnb. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. So that is a major <sighs> factor here. Point for me. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going <laughs> to talk about that. But first, you know what's not Airbnb? I hope not. Maybe. Super awkward. <laughs> Any of our sponsors? Uh, probably. Sophie, are we sponsored by Airbnb? Not Woo! that we would have. Not that we would have approved or signed off on, but like we don't. As Great. You know, we don't have control of the random ads. So if it's randomly an uh, Airbnb ad. Yeah. Look, if you ironic. if you hear here's what I'll say. If you hear an Airbnb ad on the podcast, um. Find your nearest Airbnb rental and huck a Molotov cocktail through the window. Whether or not there's people inside, it doesn't matter to us. Legally, this is a joke. Yep. <laughs> Just gonna sit in the background here. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Set something on fire today. Let's yeah. go. I feel like uh, I feel like that mean of everything's no? fine with the dog and the fire. Yeah. That's my face right now. Everything's fine. That is your face right now. Everything's you know what? Fine. I'm gonna enjoy this moment, Robert. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information, so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com news and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com news. Identity theft protection starts here. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Oh, gosh. What a great day to be an American. We're back. no one ever. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I did when I watched Ooh. those Philly fans sliding down those greased up light poles. Every time I see Philadelphia oh, celebrate anything, I'm proud to be an American. I, I was proud of the uh, uh, do, do the the New Yorkers at the yeah. uh, Yankees uh, Astros game that heckled Ted Cruz. Have you ever that seen that delight. video? It's heartwarming. Proud of that too, and I'm proud of Forbes for reporting on how bad Airbnbs are for housing Ooh. vacancy rates. Here we uh, go. And I'm going to quote from them now. Research conducted by the Harvard Business Review across the U.S. found that Airbnb is having a detrimental impact on the housing stock, as it encourages landlords to move their properties out from the long-term rental and for-sale markets into the short-term rental market. A separate U.S. study found that a 1% increase in Airbnb listings leads to a 0.018 increase in rents and a 0.026 increase in house prices. It may not seem like much on the surface, but there's a cost creep for those looking to rent long-term or buy. So it's just, 
again, I'm not saying the Times is wrong when they say that NIMBYs are part of the problem we have here, but be cautious whenever somebody right. talks about the housing shortage issue and just throws that out there or just frames it as a housing shortage issue, right? Rather than a costs are creeping up because a bunch of different kinds of capitalists are finding new ways to fuck people, which is the money. thing that's actually happening. Yeah. Um, another thing that's happening is that rent like the rent surge and like the way it looks and stuff. And the fact that the fact that the rent surge is being attributed to a lack of like housing construction and whatnot and zoning issues, um, that's heavily skewed by outlier cities by San Francisco. In other words, rent is increasing everywhere, right? Everyone mm -hmm. in every city is dealing with rent prices that are surging. Rent prices that are, are surging in San Francisco and a couple of other big cities because of zoning issues. But rent prices in Atlanta or in Houston are not necessarily mm. surging because of those issues, but because of how big like San Francisco and New York are and how much it, 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 they're outliers and they fuck the data up. And so the mm -hmm. picture they present in large is not accurate to why is most people's rent raising, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote again from Potter's analysis here. There is essentially zero correlation. The metros with the largest rent increases had added population and added housing ratios no different than metros with smaller rent increases. For, for instance, between 2001 and 2019, the San Francisco Bay Area added around 336,000 people but only built 94,000 new housing units. This gives an added population added housing ratio of about 3.54, much higher than both the national and regional average household size. This seems like it would indicate many more households than homes got added, which we'd expect to push prices up, and indeed, San Francisco saw a rent increase of over 53% during this period, one of the highest in the country. The problem? The Atlanta metro area saw almost the same added population over added housing ratio, but it had a much lower rent increase. Atlanta added 653,000 people over the same time period and only built 186,000 homes for an added population added housing ratio of 3.51, and Miami added almost 500,000 people but only 98,000 homes for an added population housing ratio of over five, but Atlanta and Miami saw rent increases of just 22% and 17% respectively. So again, it's just not as simple as that number alone. And I, I don't know, I'm probably harping on this too much. So we're, we're going to get out of the number shit now. Uh, I, I, I apologize. Thank I just goodness. wanted to make the point that the people who just say this is all about zoning, this is all about housing construction are trying to fuck you, right? Right. Like they are trying to enable others to fuck you and you should not take them at their word. I mean, this is the classic trick in trying yeah. to blame someone else so that the people who are actually profiting and making the most money look innocent. Kind of like the whole recycling bit. We know. We know what, like they're trying to blame the individual instead of realizing these huge corporations are fucking over the environment, yeah. but they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to lose money. So no, this is how no. we're going to rescope this. Yeah, we're going to we're going to scope. This is like there's too much regulation, not like, yeah, but you guys are also jacking the prices up. Right? right. Like you're you're also like you're also like colluding to fuck people over by. Right. Yeah. A, a, anyway. And you're doing shit like Airbnb. Like you've done a but capitalists have found a bunch of different ways to fuck with housing in the last 15 years. And it's right. not just a construction issue or like, a zoning. They're issue. basically anyway. saying that rent's high because of the uh, the lack of qual quantity of of places available, but like no. it's really not the case. It's no, otherwise right. it would be raising at similar rates in these other cities where the numbers are even worse. I didn't understand the math. That's awesome. I yeah, love that for yeah, me. So yeah, 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 yeah. So good. Anyway, you can it, whatever. Um, I uh, <laughs> like, 
Fuck, rent is fuck high. Rent these is people. oh, you wrote that in your script. Yeah. Rent is too damn high. Rent that is too rent damn is high. high. Yeah. And there's a number of reasons for it. And anyone trying to say it's this one simple thing that is also really good for developers is probably trying to fuck you. So right. now we're gonna start talking about assholes, which is fun. Let's um, go. Oh, and and more more our strong suit than numbers. So the first thing you need to know about, or the first person you need to know about, is a guy named Jeffrey Roper. Jeffrey is a businessman who describes himself as a numbers nerd and formerly worked as Alaska Airlines' director of revenue management in the 1980s. Now, anybody, anybody who says they're a numbers guy to you? Yeah, dislike them immediately. Uh, I don't know. I like I like my accountant, my uh, yeah, the guy who does my taxes. Somebody, but if somebody, like, if that's their first thing that they want you to know about them, red flag. Red flag. Red flag. Couple Do of not red flags. date that person, okay? Also, having the last name Roper, that makes me think of the guy who used to be Ebert's friend and probably killed him. Uh, That's my head cannon. If they mention anything about wow. like their yeah. credit score. a throwback. Okay, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just saying. If they mention anything about their credit score, if they mention anything about numbers, if they mention anything like that in their dating profile, do not match with them. Wait, it's have you weird. had someone girl put their credit score? Oh and my then... gosh! Yeah, more, really? more, more when I was uh, more when wow. I was living in Los Angeles. But uh, okay, yeah, that was a thing. Maybe Atlantans, <laughs> probably, probably. Oh, maybe Atlantans are not impressive, so therefore they leave it out on purpose. I don't know because I did yeah. not see that. That's a new one to me. So, All right, Robert, tell us about uh, the numbers guy, Roper, the numbers evil guy. nerd. Our money is what we're calling him, actually. Our um, money. Okay, our tell money. us about our money. Yeah, yeah. So he- he's a numbers nerd. He used to work as Alaska Airlines Director of Revenue Management in the 1980s. And look, Alaska is like the least shitty domestic airline that great, we have. Right. A great, great but, airline. But when I Roper seen them was there, dragging people off the plane, well, so. Streaming. Yeah, they don't do that now. Uh, I will say this. <laughs> they absolutely, uh, while Roper was director of revenue management, robbed us all of about a billion dollars back in the oh. 1980s. So cool. we're going to talk about how that happens. Like robbed us consumers, like cool. stole illegally, okay. criminally stole a billion okay. dollars. Hot. It's cool. Okay. Yeah. So compete. They're not the only actually a number of airlines stole collectively a billion, but Alaska was kind of leading the pack. Anyway, competing airlines. What happened is competing airlines started using price setting software and their different computers would all kind of share data on planned routes and prices with each other to make sure that like nobody was undercutting anyone else. And Jeffrey was a big part of this. He brings in price setting software to Alaska and he helps set up this system, which it, they're very happy with because it helps avoid a price war in the 1980s. And when you frame it as a price war, it sounds like, oh, they avoided a price war with this software. That's good. No, it's yeah. not. What a price war is, is companies competing to give you the best price best so that deal. you will choose their service, right? It's okay. good for consumers when a price war occurs. When you avoid a price war, it means you're getting fucked. <laughs> right. Price war amongst each other so mm-hmm. they cannot have to compete for yeah. businesses unless now, they're in like... I'm guessing they're doing like the prices right type of where there's just a dollar less. Every well, yeah, time. I mean, that, that, well, that normally what would happen is you would not, it would kind of be a little bit of a black box and they would set their rates just based on this is what we think is fair. And then kind of over time, as they see what consumers are choosing, you know, they're like, maybe we need to lower our rates or maybe we can raise them a little. What they're doing with these softwares is they're all communicating with each other to be like, this is what we are charging. Oh, we can all afford to charge more. So the prices 
just start raising and just start raising and just start raising, right? Price Lovely. wars occur when corporations fight to lower prices while still staying profitable. Um, this is good, broadly speaking, for consumers. If capitalism worked the way my high school textbook said it did, then this would this would be an example of why it's a good system, right? But that's not what happens. What really happens is that companies like these airlines do things called do so what's called price fixing, which is illegal. Alaska under well, you know, the system that Roper helped set up is illegal price fixing. The Department wow. of Justice says these companies are all illegally fixing prices. I'm not like declaring this price fixing because I don't like it. The Department of Justice says they they did a crime. Did anybody actually get Punished? Absolutely not. Well, a little okay. bit. So a little bit. A little the, the bit. DOJ okay. accuses Alaska and several other airlines of artificially in, inflating prices using the system, which costs taxpayers about a billion dollars between 1988 and 1992. The government gets settlements uh, and consent decrees out of eight airlines, including Alaska, which is like, again, when you're a big company and you have lawyers, nobody goes to prison for this shit. Right. Sometimes you, you kick the government redirected. some money. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, during this investigation, federal agents remove a computer and documents from Roper's office because, again, he's kind of one of the ringleaders of this. He will later claim in an interview, quote, we all got called up before the Department of Justice in the early 1980s because we were colluding. We had no idea. With, <laughs> of no course. Idea? Of course. Yeah. Sure, buddy. Yes. I'm, I'm certain you, you had no we idea. Know what that was. Oh, my God. We were price fixing. I didn't know all our price fixing was price fixing. I didn't know how we got no all idea. that money. It was yeah. odd. Seemed like we were just making a lot of money. We were just so, so good. Okay. It's very funny that he says that. Um, nobody gets really punished. Again, whatever whatever settlements they make are kind of slap on the wristy. After this, Roper leaves the United States for Central and Eastern Europe to fuck with people's lives in post-Soviet Europe. He's he's helping. Obviously. He's one of these capitalists who goes over there because he's like, oh, yeah. I'm gonna, <laughs> there's a lot of money to be made in setting the stage for Vladimir Putin's rise to power by right. fucking with all these newly privatized industries and siphoning money and access to future money away from any kind of like regular people or social safety net that might be built, which will create ideal grounds for authoritarianism. Anyway, it's whatever. It's good stuff. So he made money. Don't worry about he it. Make, he makes a lot of money doing this. And then he gets back to the U.S. and he's like, you know what I realized? The U.S. apartment rental industry is stuck in the past. It looks like these emerging markets over in Europe. You know, it's uh, it's old fashioned. It's too slow. And the thing that he finds that really disgusts him is that apartment managers are, quote, basically pricing their product on a paper napkin, which he seems to have found viscerally offensive. Now, what's going on here is that, to some extent, renting is more of a human business back then. So people are like coming in and sitting down and their landlord saying, well, like, this is what it, and they, you know, there's haggling and stuff and back and forth. And, right. you know, if you've ever haggled with a small landlord or gotten one to give you a break because like shit got fucked up in your life, you know what I'm talking about, right? right. You can say what you will about how inherently predatory, you know, landlording is or isn't or whatever. But like at the end of the day, it's better when you can be a human being sitting across the table from another human being um, right. because sometimes that matters, right? Like sometimes, Sometimes, like little, small landlords, Asterix, can be yeah. shitty and terrible too. But as a general rule, I always, I every time I had to lease from a huge company, I found them monolithic, slow to respond to problems, and cruel in their application of things like fees and penalties. Where I was able yeah. to like talk shit out of little landlords and and 
you know, not that I never had a, yeah. a small landlord fucking steal shit from me, but if I prefer one situation to the other, right? right? I think out of the 20, yeah. 20 years that I rented, one one was yeah. a big corporation and I hated it. It fucking sucks. I yeah. want to at least be able to call my goddamn landlord on the phone and get a person and deal with a problem, you know? Well, I also had the age old problem where uh, the guy who came to fix things, the maintenance man, was hitting on me. So I had a fear uh, that he was going to just come into my house. So, yeah, yeah no. I, I had, I, <laughs> there was I, that. I had a, the the handyman my last and my last one didn't hit on me. No, no, no. He would lecture. He would come in and lecture me about life choices and tell me about uh, you know, he was just really misogynistic. It was see, awful. I had worse. totally I opposite I, experience. I think, worse. I think it's it's equally bad. I had a gloriously opposite experience. And so when I was renting a slum, uh, it was legally zoned servants' quarters. It was one room. I lived in it with two other men um, falling apart. Uh, the ceiling collapsed on me while I was showering. Um, <laughs> and the next day, I call the landlord and I'm like, hey, the ceiling fell in on me while I was showering. You wait till the and next like, day? Well, it was like nighttime. I sh I tend okay, to shower like I it was like it was like called. night. It was like ten at night, <laughs> right. something like that. Immediately. Um, I don't remember if I called him. Maybe I called immediately and he wasn't around. Anyway, I get I okay, get okay. in touch with him and he's like, I'll get uh, I'll get my guy right over. So he sends over a repairman and he's just kind of this like old hippie looking dude and he comes over and he looks up at the hole and he's like, Yeah, we're not gonna be able to fix this for a while. And then he says, Do you want to buy some weed? And I said, yes. <laughs> and he was selling $50 ounces of pretty solid popcorn. That's like Miz. Oh, so it was good. It was a good off. deal. It was worth it. It was like several months where we didn't have a ceiling over the shower. But, but you had good weed. It was a pretty good weed hookup. We were poor as shit. <laughs> so a $50 ounce of mids, that's not a bad deal, you know? Robert. Wow. It must be wonderful to have Again, such a Again, you, you don't get that experience with a big corporate <laughs> landlord. 100% do not. That's the kind of landlord you get when your landlord is, yeah, breaking a number of different laws, but basically chill. Um, yeah. Look, again, this is, I, yeah, again, you can have whatever Marxist opinions you want to have on landlords. I'm talking about, like, from a human being perspective, it's right. always better to deal with a person than a giant edifice. So, whatever. Um, it, 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 Jeffrey Roper's entire business attitude revolves around making that kind of thing, where, like, if you're living on the margins, you can kind of skate by because you're able to, like, talk to someone on a human level, he wants to make that impossible, right? Because that, that is a barrier to profits. No In compassion, empathy exactly. allowed. Exactly. <laughs> you have predicted where we're going here. So... <laughs> In 2004, he gets hired by a company called RealPage as its principal scientist. They bought software from Camden Property Trust, which is a large owner of apartment buildings that was supposed to help them maximize profits. Now, previously, back in the napkin days, we'll call them, even big corporate apartment managers had kind of been left to guess, you know, they, they, they even if you were working with a big corporation, it was still kind of like, Eventually, some guy's going to sit down and just kind of guess what he thinks he can get out of you, right? Um, Roper knew that he could do better, just as he'd done at Alaska, by introducing machines and price fixing to the, well, Obviously. legally not price fixing yet, although it might prove to be price fixing in the future. We'll see what the DOJ says, but legally, he has not committed price fixing in the rental industry to an extent that has been proven. I'm going to quote from a ProPublica investigation. 
Roper quickly realized he required data, a lot of data, to get the algorithm working properly. He began building a master data warehouse that pulled in client data from other RealPage applications, such as those for leasing managers. A proof-of-concept version of the software had performed well in tests at townhouses. Camden offered for rent in its home city in the, of Houston. At the time, the, t- the street behind Camden's townhouses was shut down while a grocery store was being built. Leasing staff wanted to discount rent for the townhouses because of the nuisance, said Kip Zacharias, who worked with Camden as a consultant. Instead, Yieldstar, which is the company that's selling the software, suggested boosting rents. We were like, guys, just try it, Zacharias said. The units ended up renting for significantly more than staff had expected. He said, that was kind of the eureka moment. If you'd listened to your gut, you would have lowered your price. Such agents sometimes hesitated to push rents higher. Roper said they were often peers of the people they were renting to. We said there's way too much empathy going on here. This is one of the reasons why we wanted to get pricing off-site. Unimpeded by human worries, Yieldstar's price increases sometimes yet led to more tenants leaving. So, he literally is saying what you were saying. There's too much (laughs) empathy in the process as it exists. We gotta get rid of that shit so we can really fuck people. Right, right. Like, we, need, we need to get rid of the human aspect. I like yeah. that part, too. That's if like, you're a, don't be human. If you're what a small fuck, landlord, man? or if you're just a person at a leasing office with discretion, and a person comes in, and they're like, you know, they remind you of your mom, or your aunt, or your cousin, or your friend, or like, you know, you have a good rapport with them. They're like, yeah, I want to make sure you get a good deal. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll work. Again, I've had that happen to me. Um, it's, it's like, this is... And and the system, by the way, that system, the one I'm describing, was not idyllic. It was still bad. Rent was still too high. But this has made it much worse. Right. Yeah. So he's the one that began like, no, really, every year you should increase by 15 percent and they'll never question it. We just do it to every single person uniformly. And then, you know, nobody's, it's not personal. This is just the, 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 the price of housing now. And this is just the way that it works. And, you know, we're just right. trying to, we found that you're underneath the, uh, the, uh, the, and this is what it means also when like you get that letter saying, you know, your house is underpriced or lower than like right. market value or whatever. So we have to increase it by X amount. That's, That's what the value part. they're quoting on is the shit that this software hands them. Which is not necessarily a real thing it is well, a made up prediction by this it is, machine it is a thing that the machine calculated by doing a machine <laughs> version of price fixing that again as of yet has not been ruled to be price fixing by the doj but may prove to be ruled price fixing by the doj in the near future we'll see it's real soon okay yeah okay camden noted their turnover was about 15 percent higher in 2006 after it started using yield star which is again that's the software that roper is 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 managing despite this revenue grew by 7.4%. So 15% of their co- of their clients like leave the apartments that they're in um or 50% more of the uh, clients leave their apartments that year like don't renew their leases but revenue still grows. And that all sounds fine when you treat it like numbers, right? That like, oh, we had more turnover than number, but revenue still grew. But that 15% of tenants who turned over includes people who got evicted because they couldn't pay their rent and people who had to leave a neighborhood or even a city they loved because they'd been priced out. And it also, the added rent that these people paid, the reason why profits were still up, means money those tenants aren't spending elsewhere. Money they're not saving for a house themselves or contributing to the local economy rather than pumping more cash into a massive corporation whose shareholders all live Far away from the communities where this decision is impacted. Right. Yep. Rick Campo of Camden Property Trust is one of the people who doesn't see things this way. He summarized the impact of Yield Star like this. 
The net effect of driving revenue and pushing people out was $10 million in income. I think that shows that keeping the heads in beds above all else is not always the best strategy. Wait, what? Yeah, man, we put some people on the street, but we made $10 million. Fuck them people. <laughs> it's funny. So ProPublica does this big investigation, and they're the ones who bust this story. They, they find this quote from Campo where he's like, heads in beds, fuck it. Uh, and they're like, heads hey, this, this ah. kind of makes you sound like a monster. <laughs> Kind of? I think I'm, I just take out the kind of. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to quote from the, their article. Campo told ProPublica it sounds awful and doesn't reflect how he or Camden views renters today. We fundamentally today. believe our customers are the most important part of the business, he said. We're not about pushing people out. Of course you think customers are important. They're the ones you're jacking money from. Like, right. customers are important to Camden the way somebody with a nice watch is important to a man with a handgun and a fucking desire to get a fix by robbing him at gunpoint. Like, I mean, yeah, like, that guy is important to him. The liquor is, store I might rob later tonight is important to me. <laughs> this is that same level of, like, child uh, training kid children to work, and, and you're like, yeah. <laughs> This and is not I, what you think it is. And, and their excuse of like, no, but if the children didn't work for low wages, their family wouldn't have any money. So yeah, they're doing, we're doing a good see? thing. See, we're doing a good thing. We're helping them out. <laughs> All, um, good. All good. Yeah, it's 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 ghoul logic. And it's I also I don't want to I don't want to be unfair here and compare a guy like Rick Campo to somebody who robs people at gunpoint or holds up liquor stores. Cause that individual <laughs> robbing people at gunpoint or holding up liquor stores, that's honest work, right? You know, there you go. Yeah. Okay. yeah. No, that's no, no, that's, that's un, it's unfair oh, okay. to the guy okay. with the 38. To the yeah. person who is desperate yeah. and trying to get yes, anything. Yes. All right. I got you now. I'll take that flip. <laughs> yeah. I'll take um, that flip. And again, that. that's a human interaction as a general, that's you can probably talk so, your way out of the worst of parts of that, right? There's more compassion there. You're yeah, right. it's You're not right. an algorithm deciding whether or not you get stuck up, you know? Yeah, <laughs> because, you know, it's not heads and beds. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of heads and beds, we sell a lot of mattresses on this podcast. <laughs> we do, but I have yet to get one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're not giving them oh. out like they used to. That's what I'll say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sounds so bougie. Let's get to yep. those. Ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. 
Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if people have learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You think, what's the catch? But there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone and bring your own phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/behind. That's mintmobile.com/behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. We're back. Ah, oh, good times. So Campo, Rick Campo, by the way, asshole name. That's a jerk Obviously. ass, right? You can tell fucking Rick Campo. Yeah. You, no, yeah. Rick, your job is selling timeshares in Florida to elderly people with dementia who don't know where they are. Like, I mean, that's what you do, Rick racist, Campo. racist uh, radio personality that just screams at people and then yeah. tries to <laughs> pretend like he's not a racist asshole. Yeah, Rick Campo, the guy whose job is to get up at 6 a.m. and say the N-word before playing a <laughs> <Right>. fucking <laughs> Blink-182 <laughs> song. Um, so obviously he says that they're not about pushing people out but that is objectively what the software did and it began to take off like wildfire in the real estate industry which led to articles about it like this in the landlord focused news website yield pro yields is the profits you jack out of people for housing which they will die without yeah yeah okay Uh, so here's them writing about this positively Equity Residential, which completed installation of LRO. So LRO is the other kind of software. There's Yieldstar and there's LRO. Those are the two. And they both do the same. They're both competing, at this point, competing software. So it's talking about both of them. Equity Residential, which completed installation of LRO across across its 165,716 unit portfolio in Q4 2006, found it extremely useful through the turning point in the apartment market. We've raised rents hundreds of dollars in some markets, and I don't think people on site, given the way we'd trained them to think about pricing would have had the courage to push it as aggressively as this program has. CEO David Neithercutt told panelists during a Deutsche Bank conference in January. Keith Oden, Camden Property Trust President and COO, agreed. It's not in their DNA to raise pricing $150 to $200 per unit on a lease turn, he said. Camden completed rollout of Yieldstar across its 64,384 unit portfolio in Q4 2005. Both Camden and Equity so far report 1-2% lifts to net operating income that they attribute to the use of Yieldstar and LRO, respectively. And again, this is the very start of it, because these these algorithms, the way they work like any other algorithm, they get more effective at the thing they do, the more right. often they do it, the more data they get, right? So that's, again, right. they get better at raising rent by more the longer they're doing it. And the more they, I'm guessing, the more they are rented, like raising the prices yeah. as it gets higher and higher, they're going to yeah. use that as a factor. Because it raises the, all the of the average star. prices everywhere else, right? Because again, okay. they're price fixing, but not legally. So don't sue us. Um, oh yeah, I just wanted you to say everything that you named the corporations, the individuals are all yeah. the bad guys in history of the world yep. right now. So I'm yes. like, oh, this is yes. bad. 
Yeah, these are the bad guys. Yes. So if you are currently in an apartment complex and you've seen your rent rise by a surprising amount, you might want to look into whether or not your landlord uses LRO or Yieldstar. And while many companies don't use these programs, the fact that they're in use in major markets increases pricing for everybody. As one real estate executive told YieldPro in 2007, a rising tide lifts all boats. The way Jeffrey Roper sees it, landlords who don't jack their prices up are ripping off all the other landlords. Quote, if you have idiots undervaluing, it costs the whole system, which is the uh-huh. same logic that led uh-huh. to the price fixing kerfuffle uh-huh. with the airlines, right? Yeah. My cool. face is turning red. My it's, face is turning red. It's, In it's, this it's, dark void of mine, yeah. my face is turning this red. This is why you why? don't trust why? anybody who says they're a, uh, a numbers nerd because no, they do it's, fuckery it's one like of those this. things. If you've got, if this guy's logic is being, I don't know, if he's like works for a company that makes premium bourbon, right? And like he's he's applying this logic to like get the most profits out of people who want to buy nice bourbon, whatever, right? Like it's discretionary income. People die if they don't have housing. Like, housing. yeah, Good, that's, oh, safe housing. Can we put safe that housing. as the yes, marker? Yeah. Because a yeah, lot I mean, of this house, these houses that are for rent, who are with the, uh, you know, more personable, are probably yeah. not in a safe yes, area. They're fire hazards, like half of the houses I lived <laughs> in when I was a renter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like there's so many things that yes. can happen, and you're like, you literally are giving up safety for the price. Once again, as you had said yeah. it, you're like, you know, I'm living in a place that doesn't I'm have fucking, a ceiling. I, I lived in a nice neighborhood for fucking nothing, you know? Or not then. That was not a particularly nice neighborhood. But <laughs> not, not the later on, yes. weed dude. Not the weed connect. No, it was okay. Um, so the, <laughs> the way Jeffrey Roper sees it, yeah, so anyway, initially Roper's competition in this horrible business was LRO or lease rent options, right? I quoted about them earlier. But Yieldstar purchased LRO in 2017 with the Justice Department acquiescence. They were flagged for high-level review, but ultimately passed. Surprise. ProPublica writes, the approval allowed RealPage to acquire its only significant competitor, Roper said, adding, I was surprised the DOJ let that go through. So, 2017? Saying, Is that yeah, what you said? Yeah, 2017. Really? Were you really surprised? Yeah. I feel like those like organizations bought that long time I mean, ago like that, ability that should tell you what a fucking scam this is right that like <laughs> even he's being we're like yeah man i can't believe they didn't call that price fixing i can't believe they said that wasn't monopolistic five, behavior yo, we did it. it's fucked up what we did <laughs> so real page was pricing one and a half million units and the acquisition of lro would double that uh steve Wynn, real pages ceo at the point at that point said in a 2017 investor conference i don't think there's any concentration enough concentration of buying or pricing power here to warrant the DOJ stepping in. Um, yeah, so that's cool. Um, and so cool. Uh, cool, yeah, cool, cool. It, they made a lot of money. Real Pages influence uh, that year, like um, they uh, a lot of money. The firm's target market uh, was multifamily buildings with five or more units, um, made up 19 million of the nation's 45 million rental units. Um, and a huge share of those buildings were owned by firms backed by Wall Street investors who are the first adopters of this pricing software, right? So he is nice. he is specifically going to jack up the pricing of like housing for families that is tradition like 
should have been more affordable, right? Like he's he's actually directly, this business directly is targeting and jacking up the prices of what we call affordable housing. Again, not all a zoning issue. So right. RealPage renamed its combined pricing software AI Revenue Management. And by the end of 2020, the firm was reporting in an SEC commission filing uh, that its clients used its services and products to manage 19.7 million rental units of all types, including single family homes. Uh, the private ec- equity firm Toma Bravo brought the company public a few months later for $10.2 billion. And again, it's all this that's a that's enough to affect everyone right 20 million housing units that's enough to raise everybody's rent price and so by god it has name camden so are you talking about the camden apartment complexes that are everywhere yes yes okay okay yeah they're the guys who brought this monster software into the world like i hear half of the people fucking listening probably live in a camden building right there Mm. burn it down y'all yeah, burn, burn, <laughs> just kidding, burn just it kidding. down, burn it down. Sorry, Sophie, I didn't yeah. need to add to this. Um, it's it, yeah, it's cool. So it's cool, cool. The good, the good stuff is that I don't know. Um, basically, the attitude these companies were able to realize because of this software is that previously even though they'd all always wanted to get as much money as they could out of people, the number one priority was keeping occupancy full, right? So we'll make deals with people, we'll cut prices if we can get another person another unit, right? Because the worst thing is an empty unit, right? A, an empty mm-hmm. unit is just a, a total waste of, of money. This software, and Roper comes in, and Roper's attitude is, no, it's not. Empty units are fine as long as we're jacking up the prices of other units more. If we have right. to keep more units empty, as long as we're getting more total money out of the the built the complex, that's all that fucking matters. Um, and what this actually means in in reality is that people are winding up on the street or they're being forced to move or forced to double and triple up somewhere else just to survive. And profits still raise for the company because everyone who gets to stay in housing is just getting built for more money. In one analysis ProPublica did of a building owned by a company that used Yieldstar next door to a building that didn't, rent for the Yieldstar building rose 42% uh, since 2012 uh, as opposed to 33%. So like these are substantial increases. And you got to also admit... Or note that like the average in that, like the gap between yield star and non-yield star buildings is is higher because the average rental price is also being affected by the fucking yield star price, right? Right. Like right. it's not just that yield star buildings are higher than non, it's that they're raising rental prices for everybody because the whole market is surging. Even, so- yeah. Because that's the conversation is that, yeah, these like, well, I say that's this all inclusive maintenance apartment complexes, they have their steady prices with no negotiations. But even though they're significantly higher, whatever you are paying with these mom and pop landlords is still going to increase because no matter what, even if it was like, let's say cheap $800, going $1,200 is still significantly cheaper than the $1,800 apartment that's gone in. So it sounds cheaper, which is what's happened everywhere. Yeah. Because the apartments that I left literally is cheaper than everywhere in Atlanta, but it still mm -hmm. went up 40%. Exactly. So everything's good. Is it? Yeah. That's not the definition of good. Everything's good, Robert. Um, Things are fine. We should. Everything's fine. It should always be acceptable to turn things that, to turn pricing for things that people die without into right. a fucking algorithm game, just yeah. like everything else that's terrible in our society. Um, I nothing love making should matter people more. die and yeah. like risk, risk their safety for white men to be get 
continue to get rich. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I love who, that. Who, That's who, my favorite like, thing to do. You know, it's not just white men. You have to assume they're not all white, you know. Okay. Uh, so that's fine. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It's good. So anyway, <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about an even more entertaining piece of shit next episode. And we're going to talk oh, about uh, some other important stuff, including uh, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, rent control. Uh, oh, but yeah, that's, that uh, that's those are, hmm. oh yeah, yeah, in some places, although yeah, there's some fuckery going on there too. But yeah, this is, uh, th- these are s- some of the assholes who have made rent be so damn high. Oh, and also Robert, the assholes, the assholes who, because the assholes in this, the, you know, Roper is the one we're really digging into in this episode, but other assholes are just like all of the journalists who blithely re- report like, well, experts say there's just not enough housing and we have to change right. zoning. It's like, no, no, no. Not that that's not part of the issue, but don't pretend that's everything that's, that's going on. Issue. You fucking dishonest pricks. <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to have to go run or mm-hmm. something. What do I, what do I do? Yeah, um, I don't know. Go rent a house. Go, everybody go out and sign a mm-hmm. lease. I quit. Yeah. Yeah. Samantha, right. do you yeah, have anything no. you want to you wanna plug? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> let, let me gather my thoughts. Yes, you can uh, come find me at my podcast with uh, Annie, Stuff Mom Never Told You. If you like to talk about feminist issues where you want to rage about how... The U.S. hate women. Um, a lot of people hate women, Man, apparently, in general. And those who identify as female, you know, they think they do, essentially. Or any uh, issues dealing with those who identify as female, come on over, listen to us. Um, yeah, and also you can find me on Instagram, McVeigh.Sam, or on Twitter, I believe McVeigh Samantha. Yay! Yeah. You can Yay. see pictures of my dog. Well, love that. go with Christ, my children. And we'll be back for for part two on Thursday. Hell yeah. Well, maybe. What just happened? Okay, bye. Bye. Okay, bye. Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and 
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. <laughs> 